in the next couple of weeks. And today, as we're thinking about the topic of sexual unity, um, we're thinking about this idea of how Paul calls the church to be united. And we talked already about the visible unity that we're called to be experiencing in Christ. We have a sort of different theme over the next few weeks. And and as we do it, um, there is a song that just keeps coming up in my head that seems so incredibly relevant for us um, by the gifted lyricists Salt and Peppa um, that I think we need to hear as we begin our time. Oh, go back one. When it comes oh, oh, go to back the other way. Hey, that's cool, Bible, but we're going to see that later. Go to the, uh, the, there we go. Come on. Let's talk about sex, baby. Okay, good times. So, uh, I I want us in the next few weeks to kind of wrestle with this idea that sex is not a topic that is outside the purview or the relevance of the church. Uh, And I worry that sometimes um, we think that way. In fact, uh, Deborah Hirsch, there's a wonderful book called Redeeming Sex, talks about this a little bit. She says when she first became a Christian um, that she felt like this was an unacceptable topic for the Christian world. She says, despite what now appears to me to be the overwhelmingly obvious connections between spirituality and sexuality, when I first came to faith and went to church, I had the sneaking suspicion that God had nothing to do with sex. Well, apart from the fact that He didn't want single people doing it. Church seemed so sexless to me that I wasn't even convinced married people were doing it, except that they kept having kids. By that point in my life, talking about sex, having sex, even experimenting sexually was a pretty normal part of life. When I went to church then, it was like being time warped back into my grandmother's era, where sex was off limits, both in word and in deed. This sex as taboo culture was a real problem for me and the others I came to faith with. We had a thousand questions and a church full of people not willing or even able to talk about it. I think that's such a helpful insight for us, that it's easy for us to say, oh boy, that makes us uncomfortable. We, we joke all the time. We had a whole class on this um, over Vacation Bible School for our adults. We joke all the time about the uncomfortableness of having the birds and bees conversation with our children as though there's something wrong or weird or uncomfortable. It's just normal, right? It's this gift that God gives us. So I hope that over the next couple weeks, we can talk about our spirituality and our sexuality and all the ways that they connect. Because as Deborah Hirsch says again, how can any of us be real, authentic people if we have to leave our sexuality at the door? How can we speak to a sexually confused world if we have nothing to say? It's vital that we bring back a living, holy sexuality into the context of the church. So, um, while we do this, uh, there is a, a little bit of an unfortunate reality. The unfortunate reality is um, we're following Paul's letter, and Paul actually begins in a negative, not a positive. He's going to get to the positive about sexuality in a few chapters. Um, but right now, he begins a little bit with a negative. And so um, we're going to follow Paul's train of thought here as best we can. Um, But I want to begin simply by saying, hey, even though we're going to talk about sexual immorality today, we don't want to suggest that sex is a bad thing. It's very good. Uh, It's very spiritual. Uh, On this July 4th, 
um, a, a helpful metaphor might be that, that sex is like freedom, right? Freedom is this incredibly good thing, right? It's intrinsically good, but obviously freedom can be used for bad things. Um, I, had, I had a couple of things I, I heard about July 4th I thought I'd ask you about. Um, does anybody know uh, what King George thought about the colonists? Yeah, he thought they were revolting. Yeah, yeah that's good. Uh, do, you, do you know why Paul Revere read, rode his horse from Boston to Lexington? Because it was too heavy to carry, obviously. Um, and do you know why there's no knock-knock joke about America? Because freedom rings. Yeah? Okay, it's so good. All right, so freedom is intrinsically good, but we can use it for horrible things like those jokes, right? Um, we can use our freedom in lots of really bad ways. It can be misused, but it's intrinsically good. I want to say the same thing's true about sex, right? Sex is intrinsically good. We can use it in bad ways. And the, the Bible has a word for this. When we use uh, sex in a bad way, the Greek word is pornea. Everybody say pornea. Pornea is translated in our passage as sexual immorality. It's a really good translation. It just means any way that we use God's gift of sex in a way that doesn't honor God or lead us to life, right? And so, um, pornea concludes everything from, you know, sleeping with your father's wife to cheating on your spouse to looking at someone lustfully, right? All of those things fall into this category of what Paul calls pornea or, or sexual immorality, uh, this is uh, an important topic for Paul, especially in the context of this letter, um, because there are a host of sexual behaviors that are not life-giving, that are commonplace in Corinth. Uh, and in fact, they're commonplace in much of the Greco-Roman world. Uh, the Greco-Roman world, very much unlike the Jewish and the early Christian world, sort of is permissive about everything. It's kind of like whatever you want to do with your body, it's your body and you can do it. Actually, it sounds a little bit like our culture today. Uh, and um, that uh, permissiveness was deeply uncomfortable for the early Jewish Christian authors of our Scriptures. Uh, uh, one Greek author, by way of uh, illustration of this permissiveness, one Greek author famously said, mistresses we keep for the sake of pleasure, concubines for the daily care of the body, but wives to bear us legitimate children. I tried having that conversation with my wife. She didn't think that was a good idea. Um, so, uh, in this culture where there is this incredible permissiveness about whatever we want to do with our body, it's your body, um, in Paul's Greco-Roman culture, um, Paul finds an aspect of pornea, of sexual immorality, that even the Greeks and the Romans don't do happening in the context of the church. And the issue is that a man has his father's wife. So, pause for just a moment. Um, we are not talking about a man sleeping with his mother. We're talking about a man sleeping with his father's wife. So, either his father is remarried or his father has multiple wives. We don't know. Uh, but the, text is, the context of this is pretty clear on that regard. Uh, and it's pretty clear in that regard that this is not a one-time deal, that this is an ongoing relationship. Uh, and I think Paul pulls this out partly because it is shocking to him that it's happening in the church, but also partly because it's almost like Paul wants to start easy, right? He wants to say, hey, we can all agree on this. Even the non-Christian world can agree this is kind of not a good idea, 
right? Uh, and it seems to me that um, as we begin this conversation about what is and is not sexual immorality, there are things that even the non-believing world agrees on uh, that we in the church need to remember. When God is asked, uh, or, or rather when God instructs the people on the ten most important commandments they need to know, the seventh commandment is you shall not commit adultery. Now, and I would say that in and out of the church today, the vast majority of people that I know would say that they completely agree that if you make a promise to someone, you should keep that promise. And if you make a covenant of marriage with someone, you should keep that covenant. And I know that in our culture, uh, perhaps uh, divorce for convenience might happen more than it used to happen. Um, but even that is a recognition that there should be a formal ending of our relationship before I begin a relationship with somebody else, right? And all of that is this recognition that we share with our culture, that there is something wonderful and sacred and good about the covenant and the promise of marriage that we can all support and um, we should all defend. Um, behind that, behind Paul's pulling out of this extreme example, is a recognition that there are… Um, aspects of our lives that are not life-giving, that we are not granted unlimited sexual freedom, uh, that sexual immorality is destructive for us, right? It's not just that it makes us uncomfortable or it makes God uncomfortable. It's that it is destructful for us. When we make a covenant with somebody and break that covenant, it hurts our hearts, it hurts their hearts, it hurts our souls, it hurts the relationships of those around us. And Paul wants us to recognize that this incredible gift of sex that we've been given um, is given with some boundaries, some boundaries that even the non-believing world can recognize. And then the question becomes, who decides what is and is not pornea, right? Who decides what is and is not sexually immoral? And um, for that conversation, I want to jump ahead for a minute. I want to jump ahead to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. I think it's really helpful for us. And I've got just one scripture. Yeah, just leave that up. Um, 1 Corinthians chapter 6 says, the body is not meant for pornea or for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. This is such an incredible concept, right? The, um, the body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. Drew Boucher sent me a video this week um, of a speaker I've not heard before. Her name is Jackie Hill Perry. And she does an amazing job talking about um, this very topic, about what is and is not life-giving for us and our sexuality, and um, what it means that the body is not meant for sexual immorality, but the Lord and the Lord for the body. So I want to share some of Jackie's thoughts with you. When it comes to sexual sin and the Bible, I think we've done a really good job on the interpretive hermeneutical side of things. Like we know the original languages, we know Paul's cultural influences. We done had 16,426 conferences about sex and sexuality, half of which I've been at, <laughs> you know what I'm saying? And so I don't think anybody is confused that the Bible has a perspective on sexuality. Whether we agree or not, I don't think anybody's ignorant to the fact that it exists. But I do wonder, if, if the culture is clear on what it means for Christ to be Lord of the body, right? Like, that, that, like the theological understanding of lordship because it matters. <laughs> In 1 Corinthians 6, Paul says that the body was not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. That's big because it means that the body has a, a purpose. It has a design, which is for us to show forth 
magnify, live out, live in our bodies in such a way where the creator of it is glorified and honored. And I don't think that's appealing to anyone who lives in the flesh. Um, because if you're in the flesh, you, you, you want to be Lord of the body. And so even some of your interpretive work might be influenced by that underlying uh, narcissism, really, that, that I am all that I need and that my, my own sexual self-expression really is the best thing for me to be and do and live and all the things. And when I was a slave to all kinds of sexual sin, whether it's lesbianism, pornography, uh, lust, like all the stuff, it wasn't appealing to me because I didn't understand that Christ as Lord was good news because I didn't understand Christ, right? Like if Christ is Lord of the body, that means that a sinless, holy, righteous, good, preeminent, delivering, uh, just, loving, kind, patient person, God is Lord, master over my body. That is good news because I'm not none of those. <laughs> I'm not inherently good. I'm not inherently kind. I'm not patient. I'm not pre, I didn't even create this thing, right? And so for me to position myself as ruler over it, as if I had the stamina, as if I had the wisdom, as if I had even the goodness to take care of myself in the same way that God would. And so I just think it's a worthwhile conversation for us to start having is what does it mean for Christ to be Lord of the body? And why is that good news? And if it is, how should that inform the way I live in my body presently? Because God cares so much about the body that he's going to resurrect it one day for all those who are in Christ Jesus. So it's not like he don't, he's not like he's saying don't walk in sexual immorality because he doesn't care about your body. He actually cares about it so much that he wants you to use it for glory. And so that's it. So good. Um, sometimes somebody says something so much better than I can say it, uh, and that's a great example. I love this concept. I think this is maybe the, the underlying Christian response to every critical area of our life is to say, I would like to be Lord, but Jesus needs to be Lord, right? I would love to be Lord over my money because I have a lot of great things I like to do with my money, um, but when I accept Jesus, I say, Jesus, you're Lord over my money, I would like to be Lord over my free time. There's a lot of stuff that I like to do, and there's a lot of stuff that I don't want to be bothered to do. Um, but when I accept Jesus, I say, Jesus, you're Lord over my free time. I would like to be Lord over my body. But when I accept Jesus, I say, you know what? Um, Jesus, I trust that you know what to do with my body even better than I do, and with my money, and with my free time, and with my children, and with my job, and with everything in my life. And, and this is the good news, right? The good news is that we have someone who knows how to be Lord over us better than we do. There's a story about a woman sitting at home. Her husband's traveling for work, actually probably coming home at this time. And he's traveling from out of town. And so she's sitting at home watching the news. And she sees on the news that there is a car traveling the wrong way on an interstate. It happens to be one of the roads her husband might be taking on the way home that day. Uh, and so she calls him just to say, hey, you know, funny thing, but be careful. 
Uh, so she calls him and says, hey, funny thing, but you know, there's somebody on the road that you might be on at some point today, and they're actually driving on the wrong way on the highway. And he says, yeah, thanks for telling me, but it's not just one person. It's hundreds of people driving the wrong way. I love that story um, because uh, despite all evidence to the contrary, I live my life as though I know what's best, right? All the time. All the time I live my life as though I know what's best. Uh, and, and part of the work of giving our lives to Jesus is to say, you know what, Jesus, you know what's best. You know what's best for me in every aspect of my life, even over my body. Um, Jesus, I want you to be Lord and not me. Uh, and, and by the way, um, as, a, as a little aside, um, in our culture today, I realize this is particularly challenging because in our culture today, as we think about morality, we usually think about it as a social function, right? Morality is about how I relate to you and other people around me, and that's true. I mean, that's, the Bible is all over that, right, about um, the idea that morality is rooted in our relationships with others. Um, but because we think of morality and our secular culture as social, we often think of it as not personal. Uh, and I want to suggest that in the Christian worldview, the more personal a topic is, the more it affects you as a person. Maybe that's just obvious, but I think it's really profound. The more personal a topic is, the more it affects you as a person, the more power and potential it has as a spiritual lever in your life. So if the journey towards Christ is one of moving from self-centeredness to selflessness, then our sexuality and our sexual choices have a massive significance in that journey. Because they are so deeply personal, we have this incredible power when we turn them over to God, when we say, Jesus, we want You to be Lord over our bodies. So uh, in the coming weeks, we're going to talk a little more about this question of um, pornea, what falls in and out of God's will for us, what is life-giving and what is not. Um, but I just want to say today um, that this is not a journey of self-discovery where we have to discover um, through experimentation which partner is right for us, what preferences for us, what behaviors are for us. This is a journey of Christ discovery. And our sexual identity is one of discipleship, of discovering how we can honor and love and please God with our body, including in this really amazing good gift He gave us called sex. So I think um, a really simple task for us today is to ask Jesus to be Lord of our body. This should be the prayer of single people and of married people. This should be the prayer of people having sex and people not having sex. To simply say, hey, Jesus, um, I want you to be Lord over my body and everything that that means. We're going to talk more about that in coming weeks, but I just need to say um, two quick helps that we have in this journey and one warning that Paul gives us. Um, two helps that Paul gives us in this journey of, of accepting Christ as Lord over our bodies. Uh, the first is the church. It's a little bit of a weird… Actually, that's not even true. It's just an uncomfortable passage uh, because Paul talks about kicking people out of the church in this story. Maybe you noticed this. He says, expel the moral believer. Actually, four different times Paul talks about kicking this guy out of the church who's sleeping with his father's wife. Uh, it deserves more time, but in a very quick summary, I want you to understand that Paul's purpose in this is redemptive, not punitive. Uh, Paul's not saying, I want this person to suffer. He's saying, I want this person to recognize they are choosing to live outside of the world um, of which 
Christ calls us, and so, therefore, they are by default in this other world where other powers and principalities reign. But He is so clear that He wants this to be a process that brings people back to God, that brings this man back to God. He says, so that His Spirit may be saved on the day of the Lord. Uh, and, and we know a, a little extra detail about this guy because in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, the next letter Paul writes to the same church, most people think he follows up on this conversation. And in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, he says, forgive the offender. He says, you punished him, now bring him back into the family of faith. So he's not overly stressed, so that he's not overly punished, overly chastised. Welcome him back into the family. And, and so I think Paul wants us to recognize that the church is supposed to be a help for each other because we remind each other of the high calling to which we're called. Charles Spurgeon tells a story of a man who was asked, are you a believer in the Christian religion? The man said, oh, certainly. He says, are you then a member of some church, I suppose? The man said, member of a church? No, indeed. Why should I be a member of a church? It is quite unnecessary. The dying thief wasn't a member of the church, and he went to heaven. Oh, well, but of course you've been baptized. You know the commandment, been baptized? Oh, no. That is another needless ceremony. I am as safe as the dying thief was, and he was never baptized. But surely, since you will not join a church or be baptized, you will do something in acknowledgement of your faith. You give of your means. You volunteer of your time. You help the cause in some way. No, sir. I do nothing of the kind. The dying thief… Uh, let me remark, my friend, before you go any further, that you seem to be on pretty intimate terms with the dying thief. You seem to derive a great deal of consolation from his career, but mind you, there is one important difference between you and him. He was a dying thief, and you are a living one. Uh, in a nutshell, part of the job of the church is to remind each other that Jesus cannot be your Savior if you will not let Him be your Lord. Jesus cannot be your Savior if you will not let Him be your Lord. And so, in every aspect of our lives, we are called to gently and graciously point each other back to the Lordship of Jesus. Uh, the second help uh, that Paul gives us in this passage uh, is really quite simple. It's the significance and the power of, re of repentance. Uh, and uh, again, this deserves more time, but Paul talks about this individual and he says, you're going to cast him out. Um, and he says he has or he's living with his father's wife. Uh, and, and here's the key uh, for the Christian mentality. The goal isn't perfection, it's repentance. Perfection means you're doing it right all the time. Repentance means when you do it wrong, you turn around and turn back to God and walk away from what you did. Um, you may need to repeat that process, I certainly do, on a regular basis. But you cannot repent while still holding on to that which you sinned to attain. Repenting from stealing means also returning what you stole. Repenting from lying means coming back and telling the truth no matter how difficult. And repenting from having your father's wife means you have to leave that relationship. I come back often to the story of David and Bathsheba. Um, David, King David, this great godly man, wrote the Psalms, um, a man after God's own heart. David sees a woman, lusts after her, brings her into his house, commits adultery with her, and then to cover up his crime, has her husband, his friend, um, killed in battle. Then there is this incredible moment of accountability where the church, this time it's Israel, but the, the people of God come and say, hey, 
God can't be your Savior if He won't let Him be your Lord. The way you're living is not honoring Him. And David has this incredible confession and prayer. And he, um, we, we still quote that prayer, Psalm 51, 3,000 years later as an example of how to confess our sins. And then he marries Bathsheba and has more children with her. And I would say uh, that's not repentance. And that we can't hold on to the things um, that we send to attain and still repent of them. We have to say, God, I've tried to be Lord over myself as if I had the stamina or the wisdom or the goodness, but now I repent. And I ask you to come reign in my life and in my body so that my whole identity, my sexuality, and all that I am might be part of my journey in my life with you. One last thing. Um, Paul is exceedingly clear in this passage that his instructions are for believers. This is really important because um, over the history of the Christian tradition, we have often tried to enforce our um, understanding of of sexual morality on non-Christians. And Paul says that just doesn't make any sense, right? Paul says, um, what have I to do with judging those outside? God will handle that. Our job is just to look at ourselves. He says, I'm not suggesting that you can't associate with people um, engaged in sexual morality in the world. That would be crazy. That's the whole world. He's saying, I just want you to work on the lordship of Christ in your lives. And so, I believe that we as Christians have this incredible responsibility to hold ourselves to a high standard and to have grace for everybody else. Um, Deb Hirsch, one more story, um, tells the account of how she and her friends came to faith. Um, It's a really amazing story, deserves more time, but part of that journey is they came to know Christ and they were looking for a church, and they were um, mostly a group of friends bound together through drug use, um, but other things as well, some promiscuity and all this stuff. And then they all became Christians, and then they were like, well, I guess as Christians we should find a church. So they go looking for a church, and one night two of her friends stumble upon an old uh, church building with the name Christian Chapel above the doors. They saw a light shining from a side room and knocked tentatively on the door, and an older, willowy-looking man appeared. He was dressed in a white shirt and introduced himself as Pat, the pastor. Pat explained they were in the middle of a prayer meeting and invited Sharon and Mark to join. They nervously declined but said they'd be back on Sunday with their friends. Deborah says a few days later, about 12 of us trundled into that church. As we made our way down the center aisle to the front of that little Christian chapel, I'm not sure who was more shocked, the church members or us. Talk about a clash of cultures. The men were wearing suits, the ladies had on hats and gloves. We were dressed like we just rolled out of bed after a hard night of partying. I still had on my pajama top. We were a ragtag bunch of ex-prostitutes, drug dealers, punks, and goths. They were a fundamentalist church filled with conservative-looking folk. Yet despite the obvious differences between us and them, we managed to stay. Those older folk had no clue what to do with us, but they did know how to love and how to pray. They somehow managed to reach across the cultural divide to lovingly embrace us and include us in the bigger church family. 
Not all those church folk embraced us that easily, of course. There was some grumbling that went on behind the scenes, but Pat eventually let us in on a little secret. Given that the youth group was in their 60s, that Wednesday night prayer meeting that Sharon and Mark had stumbled upon had been set up specifically to pray that God would bring young people to their church. Pat would constantly remind the grumblers that we were the answer to their prayers, and it wasn't his fault they weren't specific enough about the type of young people they wanted. Pat was really an amazing, grace-filled pastor. It was like nothing fazed him. He came to our home dressed in his suit and tie every Wednesday to lead a Bible study. Nothing too radical about that, except that while the Bible was being taught around our kitchen table, drugs might be being bought and sold in the living room. Men could be in bed with each other upstairs, and it was highly likely that the crazy Greek brothers, John and George, would be noisily casting out demons in the backyard. Pat used to tell us we were the apples of his eye. He knew God was at work with us, and He didn't want to mess with that. He knew the Holy Spirit would eventually sort some things out. And despite how He personally felt about our crazy lifestyles and wild household, He remained true. He saw the bigger picture of God's redemptive purpose and priorities, and He didn't get judgmental or controlling, nor did He push us beyond what we were ready to own and live. He just modeled Jesus. I love this idea that we as the people of Christ are called to model Jesus both in our high standards for ourselves and asking Christ to be Lord over our lives and our bodies and also in our incredible grace for those who are not part of our community yet. It is not reasonable to ask people who don't accept Jesus as Lord that they would see Him as Lord of their bodies. And so, first, our call is to just love, right? Just love them and invite them to come to know the God whose lordship is really good news, to come to know the God who is perfect and holy and wise and good, the God who has formed us in the womb and will resurrect us from the tomb, the God that we willingly and joyously give our bodies and our lives to. And when they and we do that, we have this incredible opportunity to be something the world has never seen before, to be a people in partnership ruled and loved by God in Christ Jesus. May we be that kind of church today. Thanks be to God. Amen.